shirt front, Mr. Putin. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a bum. <laughs> because I want the to do you slowly. If you don't vote for the Liberal National Parties, then Anthony Albanese will be the Prime Minister of Australia. Welcome to Edge of the Election, the Edge of the Crowds Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and tonight, as always, I'm joined by Rory and Joel. So how are the two of you this evening? Yeah, doing very well. It's uh, still very cold in Canberra and, you know, there's not a lot happening in the capital, so a lot of state politics tonight. Yeah, I'm, I'm well. Yeah, considering there was a week of Parliament sitting, I'd say there was a fair bit happening in the capital but nothing interesting, dare I say it. Um, But we might start with the two big things that were interesting that happened in Canberra this week. And the first one is the Greens announcing support for the climate change bills after a handful of amendments, um, which, I mean, it's definitely a battle that Labor's end up winning, uh, mostly due to the support of the Teal Independents, who had their own complaints but weren't quite as loud or aggressive as the Greens were about it? Yeah. Um, the Greens got what they wanted, right? They wanted to uh, stall this as long as they could to to uh, increase the levels or that stuff. The levels obviously didn't get increased, but you know they made it a, a floor, not a ceiling, as they said a thousand times. Uh, a bunch of other important stuff that you know wasn't originally in the bill but is there now, and that's, uh, that's all... Uh, very good. So, you know, a win for the Greens, I guess. Um, some good negotiating for once. Yeah, uh, I think this was a bit of a positive interaction for the most part, right? Uh, the bill was quite dodgy uh, in its initial state in, in a lot of ways. Still, it still is a bit dodgy. Uh, but the Greens have, you know, they've negotiated. They've gotten what they wanted. Um, it wasn't really anything all that significant in the grand scheme of things. But it's enough to sort of fulfil their role as the party to the left of Labour in terms of pushing them on climate policy. So I think there was, there was success there. And I think this is indicative of hopefully um, the Greens operating in like more good faith when it comes to interactions with Labour. Um, so I think there's far greater potential than there has been historically for these parties to actually operate together in a way where they don't uh, screw each other over too much. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that there is a tacit acknowledgement from the Greens that uh Look, they're not going to get everything they want from Labor, but they can bargain. But that doesn't mean they're going to act in good faith in the media in general. But also with that, there is the fact that what we've seen with Labor so far, at least, is a lot of their other policies still have some sort of like climate policy in it. So a lot of their infrastructure bills and that sort of thing are going to come through with climate policy, which is going to do more to bring the Greens on side. And I think that if the Greens can have a say in some of those bills that are just as important as this climate bill, they're going to be more sold on the fact that that um, 43% is a floor and not a ceiling. Yeah, this is kind of just a, uh, you know, an indicatory bill. You know, it's going to tell you 43%, that's the goal, right? But it doesn't tell you how we're going to get there, that kind of stuff. Those bills will come uh, in the the months and and years ahead, I guess. Um, You know, it doesn't include how it's going to be funded, uh, electricity, transport, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's what it's missing. But what it does include is, you know, the allowance for more coal and gas plants. So uh, it's not really, uh, at the end of the day, this is probably uh, the bill, while it gives that goal, it's not really doing anything for the climate overall. And as you said, Jackie, it's the other those other bills and those other policies uh, that will actually see the change made. 
yeah, look, like the greens are that they have an electorate they need to please, like the, the 10, 13 or so percent of people that vote for them that are really concerned with climate policy and they're playing to that base, they play to that base well, right? But obviously Labor as a major party, as a governing party, uh, they need to they need to appeal to this broader segment of the population. And the reality the reality is most people just don't care that much about climate change. Um, you know, they'll, they'll say they care about it in surveys and stuff, but then when it comes to actually you know, uh, putting something on the line for climate change or uh, or supporting substantive policy or parties that want to deal with climate change. There's just nothing there, right? Um, and so this is a bill that's not a great bill, really, but the Australian public do not want a great climate bill, unfortunately. So I think we just need to take what we can get. And so I think it is ultimately good that the Greens support this in the end. Yeah, I don't think anything was ever going to be enough. And that's not to say that the Greens were never going to negotiate completely in good faith. And more in the sense of if we look at where we are with the climate situation right now, it was never going to be enough. Um, Even if Labor was saying that the goal was 100% by 2030, it would be, well, why not 100% by 2027? Um, And it's a fair, like, it's a fair argument because of the um, situation that we are in. But at the same time, you've got to please the majority of the population. The Greens need to uh, please their base, as Joel's just said. But the additional thing that was the big news of the week is that the cashless debit card has been repealed um, and not without the Liberals whining and Peter Dutton dragging up some talking points that were very much made in bad faith, which surprised no one at all. Yeah, I like. I just don't like to listen to Peter Dutton. Um, his his talking points were, you know, the same stuff Scott Morrison's government uh, was using. So, you know, no uh, real big changes there. And I guess he's just trying to look after Andrew Forrest's cash because you know that's where most of this cashless debit card money's going. Um, that you know they're they're way overpaying for what this is, and it's good that it's finally gone. Um, not without some uh, conjecture from the Greens and Jackie Lambie, who want an inquiry set up. Look, that's not the the worst thing in the world. I guess you got to look at what impacts they'll have getting rid of it and how you can help those people going forward. But yeah, just good to, good to see it gone. Just a, another waste of government money. Yeah. Uh, on, on Dunn's claims, he was fact-checked by the ABC and he did misuse the data that he was quoting about people uh, using the card to, uh, about how the card, uh, you know, um, cuts down on gambling and drinking and drug usage and such. Uh, it is not the way that it is. Uh, the the data does not suggest it is the way that he suggests. Um, definitely look at the ABC fact article to, to read more on that. Um, but yeah, obviously uh, a positive income management just has no place within an effective welfare state. So always a good move to get rid of that. Yeah, it especially doesn't have any place when there's like zero social safety nets provided on top of it. If it was a completely opt-in program where they then got support, um, it would be maybe a different conversation. But even then, it's still quite a dirty and easy-to-abuse kind of proposal. Um, And as we've seen with Liberals and Andrew Forrest, uh, it was definitely abused and harmed people that were already very much disadvantaged. But we might move on to the first state that has caused some drama this week, and it's still the ongoing John Barillaro drama in New South Wales because as of Monday, the inquiry has well and truly begun and some interesting details have come out, like how former Premier Barry O'Farrell 
Former Premier Barry O'Farrell was uh, Barillaro's third surprise guest witness, not witness, <laughs> surprise guest referee. Yeah, uh, a very odd one, obviously, former Labor Premier. Um, good to see the, the parties are getting along, I guess, when it comes to corruption, everyone's on the same page. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Barillaro's, uh, I think he's proved here that he's not really fit for government, let alone a a job in New York that was that's this important, you know, five hundred thousand dollars a year is a, a lot of money for any job. So yeah, I, he hasn't really done anything uh, good for himself in this uh, in this inquiry. I'd say uh, a bunch of important stuff has obviously come out, as you said, Barry O'Farrell. But you know, he also told uh, Don Perrette that this job was open and he was going for it. So uh, Perrette has been on, uh, in the news a little bit as well. So we'll see how that plays out. But you know, uh, it's it's allowed the Labor Party to have some attacks of substance over the last couple of days at least yeah i mean look if you're gonna if, if you're meant to be representing australia overseas like you don't want someone who's demonstrated this level of unprofessionalism and uh you know who, who claims that they've been traumatized by this whole process because i mean if if, if media scrutiny traumatizes you then you, you probably shouldn't be in politics <laughs> that, that's just the, that's just the, the crux of it right so yeah um you know whole bit a bit a bit, bit, bit interesting stuff there in that in that little inquiry yeah look it hasn't been a good what two three years nearly now for Barilaro. um and he did take that break for mental health reasons and apparently that was when he decided he was going to resign and then chose to wait and then did which very much feels like it's more he was waiting for a potential job to open up that he'd want um, but also you've got the other situation for Perite, which Rory hinted at, is that he allegedly um, offered to give David Elliott a job if he walked away from politics. Perite denies this claim, but look, it's it's kind of like I don't see the point in denying this one, not only because it's kind of obvious that Perite kind of wants him out, but also on top of that, that generally happens with any senior minister is that they will try to, like, the, your premier or your prime minister will try to get you a job if you walk away from politics. So it's one of those, you, everyone assumes you're lying if you deny it. Yeah, Perrette is obviously in a little bit of uh, trouble, obviously with Barilaro and now this as well. So uh, things aren't going all that well. And it's, yeah, as I said, allow the Labour Party to attack. Um, yeah, probably just admit it, say you did it, and move on. Although, you know, ICAP, it could see him gone pretty quickly if that kind of uh, stuff is admitted to. So, yeah, not not really ideal for Perrottet, who obviously has an election early next year. Yeah, and with all of this, we've seen that Labor has taken the lead in both the New South Wales polling and the betting markets, which... I saw it getting tighter. I didn't see Labor actually taking over, partially because Labor has so much baggage in New South Wales still because of Barry O'Farrell. <laughs> um, but also with the sort of mistrust with both parties, you'd rather than seeing one take over, it feels like the undecided would be the leader at this point um, because they're not making a compelling case either way as to who you should vote for. <laughs> Yeah, the Labor Party leader, I, I would suggest most people probably don't even know who he is. Uh, so, yeah, it's not, it's not doing 
Uh, it's not going all that well for either party. Um, never underestimate the Labor Party's ability to uh, fuck something up. So it, there's every chance they could, uh, yeah, you know, screw this one up and, and lose. And I w- it wouldn't put it past them, that's for sure. Yeah, I think this is just a short-term blip in what will ultimately be another Liberal win for New South Wales. Another party that I guess we we should never question the ability to fuck something up is the Victorian Liberals because whilst the Andrews government has had its fair few hiccups in the past couple of weeks, um, Matthew Guy has brought the attention back to him by having his chief of staff resign um, after trying to get a Liberal donor to give him $100,000 for personal business which the way that it's been presented in the media a little bit is that it was going to turn into PAC style funding um, to, you know, fund the Liberal Party and in particular Matthew Guy in the upcoming election. Yeah, I I just find it a little bit odd that the uh, Chief of Staff also has a marketing business on the side. Um, Seems like there's some some money uh, going back and forth that shouldn't be. Uh, I just wonder how much lobster you could buy for $100,000. I mean, it must be quite a lot, right? Uh, Matthew Guy would be the man to ask, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, just more corruption stuff, right? It's it's never ending with, uh, well, both parties, really. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, really bad stuff. And now he's given this job to his best mate, you know, best man in his wedding, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, money for the boys. That's what you're after. Yeah, right. when, when will the Victorian libs stop being criminals and, <laughs> and chill out a bit? I mean, it's like we say this almost every week. At some point, Matthew Guy does have to go. Like, he is not the person that can lead this party into a November election. Um, And almost changing who your leader, even if it's Georgie Crozier, um, will give you the slightest of bump in the polls because then the Libs aren't going anywhere at this point. They are going to lose seats to Teal Independence and to Labor again. And it's going to be... Potentially WA levels of ugly, just with more seats that they'll win. And moving away from Australia and up towards Taiwan and the United States, uh, we have Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, which went spectacularly badly in the sense of if you weren't hoping to rile up China, um, you failed. If you were hoping to rile up China, it's a roaring success, I guess. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think the other part is that they wanted to, you know, keep Taiwan on side, um, show that Taiwan uh, has the support of the US in, like, obviously China is going to try to take it at some point. It's just a matter of when. Sending the 82-year-old Nancy Pelosi, not too sure about that one. Um, I think US politicians are all too old, but she's particularly old. Uh, But, yeah, I think, look, not a bad idea to send to someone to, uh, Taiwan, show that support. Um, you can't just let China take whatever they want forever. So, you know, showing that the US is able and willing to support countries in that region is important. In this case, I don't even think Pelosi was necessarily sent. She more just, just took it upon herself to, you know, take a, take a little trip. Because like, obviously, like Biden and uh, a few others in the administration oppose, oppose the trip. Hmm. Um, look, I'm, I'm, Broadly supportive of uh, of Pelosi having gone, um, because like you, Rory, I think it's important to make this gesture that the US and that the Western world more broadly, because this has inspired like a series of other visits and plans for visits to Taiwan as well. 
uh, for, for the, EU, the, the US and the Western world, um, you know, to take this firm stand on Taiwan and not just Taiwan, but like the international norms in general, like the, like the idea that countries do not get, you know, essentially that countries don't get a sphere of influence, right? Like China doesn't get to decide what the countries around it do. And I think that should really be like maintained, something that should be maintained, something that should be protected. And so, uh, yeah, this did rile up China, um, but I also don't necessarily, I don't, I don't think care is the right word, because I, I do care, but it's not my main concern here, because obviously like, that's China's response, but I don't think their response is one that should be considered with any sort of moral weight, because there's there's no, they're, they're, they have no right to feel that way, right? Um, also, uh, another point, um, the Taiwanese people support it broadly. Um, research recently seems to indicate that Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese people are quite concerned about China and um, and their growing assertiveness in regards to Taiwan. Um, and I think, sorry, it's a, bit, it's a bit early to say, but I think they're generally supportive of Pelosi having come visit because it makes them feel safer um, with this big, aggressive, great power right at their doorstep. So, yeah, I haven't... Yeah, look, I, I support what Pelosi did. I, obviously, it's led to some um, some less than ideal things, but I think we have to think long-term as well. Um, and obviously, there's going to be some short-term consequences for this, but we also can't sacrifice these ideals like autonomy as well. Yeah, so I'm the objector in this in the fact that I thought it was a bad idea from the start because I think that what's happened is the most obvious response from China. Like you, it's fuck around and find out kind of uh, attitude of like, what what did you think was going to happen? Of course they were going to start doing military drills and threaten Pelosi's safety while she was in the country. Um, look, I'm not saying this from a pro-China stance. I think that the sphere of influence argument when you involve the United States is a bad faith argument because the United States is obsessed with its own sphere of influence. And if China tried to encroach on said sphere or another country that was an adversary to the United States tried to do that, you never hear the end of it and the United States would push back. So it's, there is, there's no good, there's no, there's definitely evils in this, but it's pretty much all major countries involved. Um, I think that Pelosi was the wrong person to go is part of my issue. I think that there were other US diplomats that could have been involved. Um, I It's the same thing with Australia's obviously not a big fish in this situation and Penny Wong would not cause this kind of a stir by any means from China. But there's the right people to send and there's the wrong people to send and it's not just about not piercing off the aggressive country that is to the north or to the east of a country, but there's also trying to make sure that when we're in a very tense time globally, there are little things starting to kick off everywhere to not be allowing things to be kicking off in this region because this is the one that could blow up bigger because there's not a NATO-esque treaty. And look, if this is a way for the US to push NATO into the Pacific, which doesn't entirely make sense, um, it's a bad move and it's not going to go well because I think China's way more likely to kick off about it than Russia is regarding the Finnish and Swedish entry into NATO. Yeah, but I think... Yeah, you go, John. 
Yeah, no, I think the reason that uh, you have to support the US in this one is because they're the only country that can actually stand up to China. Uh, like no other country has the the economic ability or the military ability to to stand up and say this isn't okay to do um, without China being able to literally crush them like they could with Australia or I don't know, New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the reason. I disagree with Joel a little bit on uh, whether Pelosi was sent. I think, like, there's no way she would have gone without the president knowing. Um, it, it makes sense that Joe Biden would send someone out uh, to Taiwan, show support, but then also uh, not be antagonistic against China and say that, like, we didn't know this was happening, that kind of thing, uh, in public. Uh, I find it hard to believe that, you know, the leader of the House uh, for the Democrats wouldn't, like, the president wouldn't know that she was going. So I think it's it's all a bit all planned there, I would suggest. But, yeah, at the end of the day, um, China's going to do what they want, like, to Taiwan. It's going to happen eventually. It's just a matter of when. And maybe this will buy um, the US and, and Taiwan a couple of years. Who knows? Yeah, I think I also just wonder, like, whilst it's great for the US to make a symbolic gesture like this, are they going to do anything if China does invade Taiwan? Because they didn't do anything with Hong Kong. Um, they weren't really doing anything with the Solomon Islands until Australia finally stepped up and started to do something. Um, Taiwan and Hong Kong are obviously very different situations. But at the same time, with, and I am, I'm anti like going to war and that sort of thing, but with the whole being hesitant to go to war, how, how do you reckon with this if this is what ends up causing it to kick off? Because it could have gotten bad while Pelosi was over there. And while I'm not, I'm kind of mixed on the Biden being involved in it or not, because it really does depend on where you believe power resides in the Democratic Party at the moment. And It potentially does mostly lie with uh, Pelosi and Schumer. But at the same time, like, it's just what are they going to do once China finally does do something? Because it is going to matter who is currently in power. It's looking like it's going to end up being the Republicans in the House and the Senate very soon. Who knows what happens with the presidency in 2024? And China's potentially just going to wait until the Republicans are in power and potentially do nothing because, yes, the Republicans love to war dog, but at the same time, are they actually going to when it's not popular with the people? No, it would depend on which faction of the Republicans is in power, essentially, right? Because it could be one of these more neocon war dog types. And in, in that in that case, like, I, it could certainly be possible that the US would, would, would intervene in that instance. Um, or it could be one of the more isolationist America first types, in which case 
that they don't have a foreign policy except that their foreign policy is no um, so um that, that's what we that's what we get there we get more more of that trump type um i don't know it's hard to say i i've i'm not going to make any predictions as to that right now um but um yeah i, I think it's it's hard it's hard to say at this point it's hard to say what, what us will do i think um yeah i think i, I think i think it could go either way I just suggest that the US has never turned down the opportunity to go to war before, and I don't think they would this time. Um, I don't think it matters who's in charge. Uh, DeSantis, as much as he's like Trump light, is still a neocon, as you described, Joel. He'll go to war. All they have to do is explain to Trump that, you know, there's money to be made in it, and he'll be off as well. So I, I don't think that'll be an issue. I think they'll go no matter what happens. Um, the difference between Taiwan and Hong Kong and Solomon Islands is they were kind of, Hong Kong was always China's really like it's it's basically on the mainland um, and the Solomon Islands is kind of a sphere of influence economic thing you know they were giving them money building bases that kind of stuff so it's not really the same as Taiwan where you would need a some kind of invasion or overthrow the government to uh, create change and I think that would lead to to some kind of conflict at least yeah that's fair it's just I think that it's one of those things that even if we like try to predict it we'll still end up being wrong because. Yeah the US are unreliable at the best of times, um, which helps no one in our region in particular. But we'll move on to gas of the week. Uh, and despite skipping out on it last week, we've actually got three this week. And we'll start with Senator Jane Hume, who suggested that no pay rise, uh, there should be no pay rises for aged care workers because businesses like Serco will collapse. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, this is the stupidest take of the week. Um, aged care just shouldn't be business at all. It, it should be, you know, government funded and government supplied. It should be part of Medicare and that's how it should run. But it's it's not. And that's why the workers get paid, you know, 23 bucks an hour. They get paid more to work at Woolies or whatever. And, uh, you know, they have to work in horrendous conditions and horrendously long hours just to, to make ends meet. But, you know, Jane Hume has some mates that uh, run aged care facilities and want to keep profits nice and high. So... Uh, that's the Liberal Party take. Yeah, it's so great that uh, Jane Hume has come out in uh, in opposition to Australia's privatised aged care model, uh, implying that businesses can, cannot run aged care appropriately because there, there's a dichotomy here, right? You can say that businesses will collapse if you don't pay aged care workers more, but then the uh, you know the the flip side of that is that you're saying aged care will not be adequate because what you're saying is that it will continue to be in the state that it was in uh, when the, the Royal Commission was conducted. And that's, and that's you know, the Royal, the Royal Commission called it a national embarrassment. It's not fulfilling its purpose as aged care. And Jane Hume is saying, well, we need to keep doing that because we can't actually pay these people more because businesses can't do it. Um, and so, okay, then, like, nationalise again. Um, we know that, na- the, that nationalised aged care works better. Uh, this is what, you know, the, the, the data seems to overwhelmingly suggest. There's a 2021 study... It's the most comprehensive study on aged care in Australia so far. Um, and this suggests that, yeah, um, nationalising it, well, oh, sorry, uh, privatising it to the extent that it was, was, was a mistake. Um, and then we need to go back on that. And, yeah, uh, Jane Hume, just talking nonsense. Um, not, nothing but pure Liberal Party dogma here. Yeah. And I think that the big thing with the work is, is the fact that not only are they, like, getting inadequate pay, they're also working terrible hours, which means that the pay subsequently feels even worse and they're not able to provide adequate care because 
like with hospitals, the ratios are just way off of carers to patients um, or carers to persons living in aged care. Um, But the other thing is like the fact that there are companies in this country that are able to run both aged care facilities and prisons is a problem. Um, And these are the mates that Jane Hume actually cares about. It's not the smaller like local aged care home that's been run by quite a small company that hasn't franchised out that she gives a damn about they probably actually pay their workers a hell of a lot better than these other big companies do as well um she's caring about the ones that are raking in millions upon millions of dollars a month um off of people that need help and need to be taken care of because they are in a later stage of life they're not necessarily so frail that they can't take care of themselves whatsoever but they need help and what comes with that is people that need to be adequately paid because it it's the studies have shown that even just paying people better is going to improve the care um but you know the liberals don't believe in actually paying workers so her take is zero percent surprising and at the same time you're just like this is disgusting yeah, uh, Boop is obviously one of the biggest ones. I find just on a side note, I find it weird that an aged care provider can also um, provide life insurance, but that's a, a different thing. Um, Booper made $407 million profit last year and they pay workers, as I said, like 23 bucks an hour and their care is uh, some of the worst in Australia. So it's it's pretty clear where the money's going. It's going to the, the guys at the top as it always does. So as Joel said, nationalise it. Um, it'll probably be, it'll be cheaper. Um, and people get paid more. Uh, and probably the most ironic thing to happen this week um, came from the National Party, of course, uh, where they voted against the amendment on in the climate change bill that would have given more funding to the areas where they get votes, aka rural areas. Um, I uh, the Nationals continue to be hilariously infuriating. But at the same time, at what point do the national constituents wake up and start voting for an alternative? Because Barnaby Joyce keeps winning that New England seat. I think that, well, when there is an alternative, they might go there, but there's currently uh, not a lot around. Obviously, the the Labor Party runs candidates, but they're not really rurally focused. And we saw that in the election by the the kind of seats that the Labor Party won. Um, But yeah, the nationals... Whoever thought that uh, the Nationals would change with Barnaby Joyce no longer in the leadership was was very wrong. Uh, either they didn't read this or they just don't care, but I think in reality we all know that the Nationals don't represent farmers. They represent mining companies. And uh, anything to do with climate change is bad for mining companies, so they'll, they'll quite happily vote against it. Uh, this was introduced by Helen Haynes, really good um, really good member for Indi there and uh, represents the constituency pretty well, and, and that's why she wins so much. Um, yeah, look, I didn't expect anything less. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, like as you guys have said, the, the Nationals—they're just not an agrarian party anymore. They're 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 they're, they're far far from their roots as, as like the country party. Uh, there's just nothing there anymore. They don't really care about rural people. Um, they just sort of, you know, extract votes from them every every few years. There's 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 no genuine like ideological commitment there anymore. Um, yeah um so what else is that to say really <laughs> yeah 
it's the nationals. Like that's <laughs> kind of how it is. It's just like, it's the nationals. What more do you expect? Um, and then the funniest from the week, as far as gaffes are concerned, was uh, Donald Trump endorsing, uh, making his endorsement for the Missouri Republican Senate seat uh, race. And <laughs> look, there's a lot to this that's funny, and I kind of hope it was intentional. But in a race where two candidates are named Eric, uh, Trump nominated Eric specifically with no last name. I don't think it was his son that he was also endorsing. Well, Donald Trump would never endorse his kids. That would be a, that would be impossible. They've got to constantly be searching for approval from their from their dad. Uh, yeah, the, the best part was though that you know both Eric's accepted the endorsement. <laughs> like they didn't didn't think to reach out and and uh, see which Eric they were talking about. Uh, just just we'll take the endorsement. All that matters is that everyone sees it on Twitter, and uh, we might pick up some a few extra votes. So. Yeah, I think Donald Trump was probably, look, as he always does, watching Fox News, saw that they were talking about an Eric and then tweeted it. That's, I think that's as far as this went. And he didn't think to to look at the other candidates. <laughs> I mean, as someone that is a Trump is hilarious truther, I do, there's this small part of me that likes to think that it was completely intentional and that he just wanted to, like, throw some chaos into the Missouri Senate seat race to just be like, Let's watch them fight over my endorsement. See how much the two Eric's love me and whichever one shows the most love will like actually get the nomination in two or three weeks time. Unfortunately, Trump is not that smart. So I don't think that's what happened, but that's like, that's the dream is that this was like some sort of idiot plan that he's concocted that is very funny. Uh, And we might move to please explain. Please explain. Please explain. Please explain. Uh, and the biggest one to come out of Please Explain this week is the Alex Jones defamation trial um, and pretty much all of it because there has been a million twists and turns in this that ended up being 50 million. I think it's actually 49.3 to be specific. Yeah, that's a, a lot of cash, but... Um... With the, the profit numbers that came out, you can you can definitely afford it. It's making a lot of money there for, for a little bit. Um, YouTube must pay well. Uh, yeah, Alex Jones, hey, I wish his show was still going because, look, it would be good content every week. It would definitely be Please Explain every week. Um, but, yeah, the stuff he said about Sandy Hook and, and the way that his lawyers have played this has obviously not gone well for him, uh, which is good. I don't want to see him have any money. Uh, the stuff he says is just horrific. So, uh, as much money that can go to these families as possible is good, and there's still three more cases to be run, so uh, he, he must be out of cash eventually. I don't know. I mean, as long as he's selling those, those male brain supplements, I think he's, uh, he's, he's got the cash flowing in. I mean, the fact that he was at one point earning like $800,000 a day, um, and that was after he'd been deplatformed off of YouTube, is just ridiculous, but This trial in particular was fascinating from the start because uh, the jury wasn't even determining whether Jones was liable or not. Mm -hmm. They were actually just determining damages because he and his lawyers caused that many shenanigans uh, from the start that the judge said, "Uh -uh, you're definitely liable. Um, The jury's going to rule on damages. They ruled $4 million on compensatory damages and $45.3 million on punitive damages, which is massive. 
Um, and then, like, with that, his own lawyers leaked his entire phone history to the um, prosecution, which, what, like, how do you still have your law license at that point? Uh, they're not that hard to get, believe me. Um, uh, there's a, yeah, it's just, um, yeah, really bad work from his, from his team there. You would have thought if he's making that much money, you could pay for some decent lawyers, but I guess, uh, when you're Alex Jones, no one really wants to represent you. So that's probably what that comes down to, but yeah, a, a massive mistake and, uh, it cost him 40, $49 million. Yeah, and the last item on Please Explain, which is probably also the accidental leftist moment of the week, came from Steve Price, who you might know from the project and being the cranky conservative boomer on that show all the time, uh, tried to do a what about the billionaires take, but was basically just a glowing endorsement of the Greens as far as the headline's concerned. Yeah, uh, Steve Price is uh, an interesting fellow. Um, I don't know. Maybe he's been talking to Waleed too much and getting some some conservative takes. Uh, but yeah, this this was um very odd. I'll read the headline: The Greens' propo- proposed utopia may provide Australians with good teeth, free childcare, and uni. All sounds pretty good, right? But uh, the winters will be cold and dark as millionaire miners, amongst others, pay the price. Uh, the the picture is of Andrew Forrest. Now I know the Greens aren't big on uh, burning down forests, but I think he might be one that they would particularly like to target. Yeah, um, really, really strange from Price, obviously, um, mentioning all these things that people likely want and that I assume would be fairly popular policies, um, and then saying that we have to uh, sacrifice our billionaire miners to get them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all, you know, it ignores the fact that, like, coal is just an inefficient, way, uh, an efficient source of energy, right? And the only reason we still have coal-powered energy is because the government subsidises it. Uh, it's, it's not efficient. If we didn't subsidise it, the markets would have sort of sorted out another source of energy, I'm sure. Um, so there's, there's that whole element of it. Um, and then, uh, and then like, it's like, I, I don't know, is Steve Price coming out in support of these policies but saying that, like, pragmatically, like, they can't work? Like, there's, that, that seems really strange as well because, like, you know, surely he would support maybe taxing someone else to get it if we need to. Like, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's, it's strange on all levels. Pricey, what, what are you doing, man? I mean, yeah, I called it accidental leftist, but I think it's actually that, like, America brain tape where he's got some idea that, like, Australians have that same weird, like, oh, I'm not actually poor, I'm a temporarily embarrassed rich person yeah. um, by not being wealthy, which that's not really the Australian way of doing things. <laughs> Aussies tend to acknowledge when they're broke, Um and the fact that they don't like rich people all that much. Um, I just, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's like here's a list of things that people ultimately do want. Um, but also winter's meant to be cold and dark. Like the sun sets earlier and rises later. It's naturally meant to be colder in winter. Yes, I get it. That Oh, we might not be able to turn the lights on and, oh, the heating might not be as good. But also like. Have you seen how expensive electricity is already? Like <laughs> the coal uh, and gas plants are still open and electricity is crazy expensive. It's not going to be the end of the world if we stop relying on these things because solar energy is cheaper and most people don't actually use gas heating these days. 
yeah, he, he was so close to the point, but just, um, I don't know, just didn't quite get there, unfortunately. Maybe uh, as he gets on a little bit, he might just come to the left a little bit more. That's what I'd like to see. I I could see hell freezing over sooner, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that brings us to the end of today's episode. So, Joel, Rory, would you like to share your social medias? Uh, yeah, same as every week, at Rory underscore Dennis. Give it a follow. Uh, Joel W. Duggan on Twitter. And you can find me at Dodzy161 on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. This has been Edge of the Election, and you can find us at Edge Election Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Edge of the Election is a part of the Edge of the Crowd network, which you can find at Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all good social media websites. You can also read any of our stories, be they politics, sport, or culture at www.edgeofthecrowd.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.